Father in heaven, Lord, again we approach your throne asking for your blessing and your grace. In humility, Lord, we come before you bowing our knees and we pray that we would bow our hearts as well, that we would sit under your authority, we would listen to your word, that it would impact us deeply and change us, that your Holy Spirit would shine light on areas of our lives that need to be revealed, that our hearts would be softened, moldable, and as a result, grow. Lord, please give us your grace, give us your understanding, give us your supernatural Holy Spirit to guide us through this time in ways that only He can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Crisis is a catalyst. Crisis is a catalyst for change. I'm thinking most recently, of course, about the flood, but if you roll it back a little bit, what you'll see through this coronavirus is a lot of changes. And of course, some of them are difficult and uncomfortable. But if we're able to step back just a little bit, I think most of us would be able to say, yeah, some of them are good. So let me ask you, as you're thinking about this coronavirus and what you're seeing change right before your eyes, many of the things you wish to return to normal, but some things are actually better. What, for example, would you say are some positive changes that the coronavirus has brought into your life? As I think about it with me and my family, we can see a lot of things. In in the past, for example, we appreciated the option to do curbside pickup when we were in a hurry or when we didn't want to get all the kids out of the car or when we wanted to order the night before and schedule. But now, as we look around at our community, it's not just one or two places that's doing curbside pickup, but everybody overnight all of a sudden has to do curbside pickup. Now, it's difficult. It's not easy. But at the same time, we think in the long run it'll be better because of the way in which it facilitates the flow of traffic and everything else. It looks like it'll be good. For us as a congregation, things like that have happened as well. I can remember as a pastor in the past kicking around with some of our worship arts people and tech directors. Hey, should we uh, ever consider doing live streaming? <laughs> Look where we are now. Uh, only a few months ago, it was a vague idea in the back of our minds. If we ever wanted to give it a try, maybe we should upgrade and get some different equipment or this or that or this or that. And all of a sudden, overnight, we're forced to do it with whatever we have and make it work. We would have never tried that were it not for the coronavirus. You think about things like Zoom and virtual doctor visits and online learning. In the past, they existed, but now they are front and center of our lives. Indeed, crisis has been a catalyst for change. And not only for technological advancement, and community development and things like that, but for personal advancement and spiritual change as well. See, one of the things I've noticed as a pastor and talking to and praying for and dealing with a lot of different people is that crisis is a catalyst for change because it 
forces issues within us to the surface. Things that have always been there and we've been able to sort of sweep under the rug or compartmentalize or push to the side under controlled, normal circumstances have all of a sudden been pushed to the surface. One wise person said to me, when people get squeezed, you see what comes out. And indeed, we're all being squeezed quite a bit right now. Crisis is a catalyst for change. And today, in Mark chapter 8, we're going to see another crisis that the disciples are facing. Now, they've already faced a few with Jesus already. This is similar to the one they had just last week, but in, in last week's sermon. But today, I think in particular, as Jesus addresses the issue, he points at their heart and he will show them what's really being raised to the issue or to the surface and how that applies to us as well. And so I'd invite you to follow along with me as we read in our Bibles, Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 11. Be reading from the English Standard Version of the 8th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, beginning in verse 11. It says this, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, it's Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat and went to the other side of the lake. Now, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they, the disciples, began discussing or arguing amongst themselves the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts so hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of the broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And for the seven thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for this. Now, here's a strange passage which appears to be a bit of a rebuke from Jesus, and indeed it is, but it's a good rebuke because it's a transforming rebuke. It's one that takes that issue that's being brought to the surface and addresses it so that they can advance in their spiritual life or their walk with Christ. So let's look at the two groups of people here. We're going to look first at the Pharisees, the one group that's addressed. And then we're going to look next at the second group, the disciples. And then we'll turn around and not just leave it at them, but look at ourselves and say, how does this apply to us? And we'll do that throughout, but mostly we'll look first at the couple of groups and then we'll see how that applies to us at the very end. So the first thing I want to say is this, when we look at this passage, 
um, you ask the question, what is the issue that's being brought to the surface? What is it? And Jesus doesn't necessarily say, as we look at this, it's not like he says, your sin is this, and puts his finger on it. Instead, he asks this series of questions, almost like machine gun fire, just rat-a-tap-tap, 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 and the disciples are taken off guard and forced to look within themselves and examine themselves and see what it is that he's going after. And not only the disciples, but the Pharisees too, because at one point he says, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So he's addressing something that's happening within all the actors, and he's really befuddled or really bothered by it. What is it? What is it that Jesus is bringing to the surface? The thing that Jesus is raising to the surface is essentially what Christians call faith. Now, I know that's kind of a churchy term, and it's kind of nebulous because it's not physical or tangible. But what we sometimes do is we say faith is believing in Jesus. And again, that's a little bit awkward because then you start to say to yourself, okay, what does is, what is believing in Jesus mean? And I think for a lot of us in our world today, We kind of come to this conclusion, even if we don't admit it, that for us it might be a little bit harder to believe in Jesus because we weren't there with him. We didn't walk with him. We didn't see the miracles. You know what what they say, seeing is believing. Therefore, if we would have seen Jesus walk on water, if we would have seen him feed the multitudes, if we would have seen him cast out demons and raise the dead and heal the sick, then surely we would believe. Well, do we really think we're that much better than the people he actually walked with? Here are two different groups, the Pharisees and disciples, and they're still struggling with this same issue, believing in Jesus. And even though they saw, they didn't necessarily believe. So when we look at that statement, seeing is believing, we have to realize that it's not necessarily true. Sometimes people see and still don't believe. One commentator by the name of R. Alan Cole in his commentary on Mark says, actually for Christians, the way it works is the exact opposite. That it is not seeing is believing, but instead believing is seeing. Believing allows you to see. And again, that sounds a little bit nebulous, so let me bring it back and say, okay, how do I tweak this? I would say, seeing, yes, is believing, but not just anything, but seeing Jesus is believing. But wait a minute, Pastor Jeremy, these guys saw Jesus like he was right with them. So what do you mean, seeing is believing? What I mean is, seeing Jesus for who he is. And believing and accepting that truly leads to seeing. It's one thing to see Jesus and say, oh yeah, there's Jesus. But it's another thing to see him as the only begotten son of the living God. It's one thing to see him as a teacher. It's another thing to see him as the creator of the universe. It is one thing to see him as another good source for morality. It is a totally different thing to see him as the 
ultimate authority who sits above all people, all rules of all time. You see, Jesus, for who he is, is the only begotten son of the living God. He's the king of the world. He's the omniscient great I am who knows every single one of your thoughts and every sin that I and you have ever done. Jesus is the Lord. He is the ruler. He is the only one to whom we owe absolute, unquestioning allegiance and authority. He is the strong man who has entered the enemy's house, broken down the enemy's defenses, bound the enemy, plundered his goods, and released the captives and set them free. He is our Savior who has delivered us from the chains of sin and death. He's Jesus. And neither the Pharisees nor the disciples see him for that in this passage. So how do they see him then? Well, let's talk about the Pharisees first. The Pharisees are smart people. They're intelligent. They're educated. They would have a wall full of degrees. And they would be able to speak to the latest cultural issues or trends. They understood Jewish law. They understood the Old Testament. They studied it. They knew it inside and out, back and forth, commentaries, examples, precedents, case law, etc. They got it. And what they understood about the law in particular was that it communicated how holy and righteous and beautiful and wonderful God was, how untouchable he was and how defiled he would be by sin. And that is 100% correct. They were all right on that point. But what they missed was this. They assumed that all defilement comes from the outside. And there is no need for cleansing of defilement that already exists on the inside. And so with that approach, they thought that they could stay holy or stay good by just setting enough enough barriers or setting up enough rules or practicing enough law or legalism to be able to achieve God's holy standards. And what the law was actually intended to do is to show them the exact opposite is true. That no matter how hard we try, no matter how high we go, no matter how much we achieve or what we set before us and accomplish and do, that it's not enough. That we are all sinners in need of salvation under just condemnation of a holy and righteous God. The law teaches us we can never, ever, ever reach him on our own. And the Pharisees missed that. They thought that the greatest evil came from without. And what they didn't realize was actually the opposite. That the greatest evil comes from within. Now listen to me, church. This is a big one. How often do we do the same thing? I'm not saying we're all legalists or Pharisees or religious rulers or anything like that. But what I am saying is that 
we often worry about outside sin when in reality we should be more concerned about the deepest, darkest sins that are dwelling in our hearts. Not the big mistakes we've made in the past. Those are obvious. Not the things we feel guilty about. But the things that are lurking unseen. The things that are hidden. The bitter roots that have embedded themselves there and are waiting to pop up and bear the fruit of death at just the right moment. The greatest evil comes not from without, but from within. And it's really hard, yea, it's impossible to follow or believe in Jesus until we can get to that point. As long as we're saying the evil's without, we've never repented and admitted our need. It is not until we fall on our knees and our hands and face before God Almighty and say, O wretched sinner that I am, who will save me? That we will receive the forgiveness we need. Look, when Jesus begins his ministry in Mark chapter 1, it says in verse 14, he came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. One of the things I'm praying for in this coronavirus, this epidemic, this flood, is for repentance. I mean, it's hard and we don't necessarily like it. And many of us are asking the question, what in the world, Lord, are you doing? But the reality is this, as we look at history and all the ups and downs of nations and kingdoms and rise and fall and this and that and the prophets and the Old Testament, it's so often the case. I'm not saying the United States is Israel. We're not. But it is so often the case that the people of God, when they come under duress, These issues are brought to the surface and it is on them at that point to repent. And those who do show themselves to be true sheep and those who do not are separated from him. The difference between whether you're a part of the kingdom of God or not, whether you're a Pharisee or whether you're a Christian, is whether you will admit your need and fall before Christ and say, I'm sorry of my sin. I need you. I repent. We get the chance to do that, not just initially at the point of salvation, but every single day. If you're a Christian, if you're in a church, you'll have other people point out your sins. (laughs) And you'll have the opportunity to repent. And it's hard and it's not easy. But this is the good thing that a crisis does. It brings or catalyzes the issues to the surface. So number one, the Pharisees, their issue is that they just can't repent. They won't admit their need. They think they've got it. They think evil's on the outside, not on the inside. And therefore, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you calling us out? We don't really appreciate it. We're now antagonists and enemies. Now, the disciples, the disciples are a different matter. They don't seem to be as necessarily hard-hearted. They're just hard-headed. They're really hard-headed. In fact, what you see in verse 11 is this, is that in verse 14 it says, the disciples 
had forgotten to bring food and had only one loaf. And then in verse 16, it says they began discussing or arguing or fighting with one another the fact that they had no bread. Now, do you remember what happened in verses 1 through 10? Just last week's sermon. You may not remember everything from that sermon, but I think if you saw the sermon, you remember there was something in it about Jesus feeding the multitudes. That Jesus took the bread that was offered to him and multiplied it exponentially. They are walking away from that event. And it is the second time they've seen it. They saw the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. And now, after a confrontation with the Pharisees, the disciples are headed to the boat to go away because they're like, we're not getting anywhere with this. And they get in and they realize, all of a sudden, we got no bread. Now, many commentators and a lot of people think at this point, if the disciples are paying any attention whatsoever, they shouldn't be worried at all. And so some liberal commentators actually even say, well, this story didn't happen. There's no way this could happen because, no, no, it happened. This is who they are and they're people and they're just hard-headed. And here's the way I imagine it went down. I, I have a little bit of fun with this, doing my sanctified imagination. I'll try not to be too silly. But as I think about this text, I just got to imagine it happening a little bit like this. Bread. One of the disciples is walking along to the boat. And he pulls out his lunch. They're getting in. He's sitting down. He's about to eat his lunch. And another disciple, maybe the other son of Thunder or somebody else or Peter, says to him, hey, uh, where's the rest of it? I said, what do you mean the rest of it? Well, you know, the bread. It was your turn to bring it. My turn to bring it. No, it wasn't. I brought it last time. Well, whose turn was it? I don't know. Maybe it was his turn. Oh, yeah. That's right. It was your turn. Well, hmm. How many pieces do we have here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. I guess we know who's not getting any. What? <laughs> you know. And back and forth and back and forth it goes before long. They could really be into it. And I actually, I see this in this passage because it says the disciples were discussing, and that word, the Greek word for discussing is not just like having a casual conversation, but this is like the word you use to describe to your children what just happened with mom and dad when you really got into it. We were having a um, discussion, a discussion, you know, like married couples do. A nice little discussion. The disciples were having a discussion, and this is very much like them. Remember, they fought over who gets to sit by Jesus. Who gets to sit by who? Who's sitting where? I want to sit there. No, that's my seat. No, I can't. No, you. They fought over who's going to be the greatest, and now they were fighting over bread. They were fighting over whose turn it was to bring the bread. And the irony of all of this is so obvious it leaps off the page. And let us not forget that it was Mark who was in the boat who wrote this book. So he's not exactly portraying himself as a hero. Instead, he's shown his worst moments too, proving to us once again the Bible is true because made-up stories don't show the main character to be a moron most of the time. 
And here is Mark, and he's writing this, and he's describing how it went down. Disciples are arguing. Even though just a moment ago, they saw Jesus. They saw him with their eyes. They received from his hand the multiplication of bread. You know, if Jesus wanted to, he could have done something like this. Watch this. Ready? You're watching, kiddos? This is my little magic trick for today. All right, see this? Twelve loaves of bread. Kapow! (laughs) Impressed? Wow. Obviously, I did something not so fancy there. Here's my other bread loaf. Here's a big bread loaf. But the irony of the whole thing is just befuddling to the point of almost being funny. Jesus has already turned water into wine. He's already fed 5,000. He's already fed 4,000. He's already done the fishes thing. So if he wanted to, he could say, hey, disciples, sit down. Hang on a minute. How about some wine? Bring your water bottles. Bloom. Wine. How about some fish? Fish. Into the boat. Bloom. How about some bread? Bloom. Distribute it. Now, how many baskets do you have? And yet they're fighting over what's going to happen. And man, do you see the issues coming to the surface. So Jesus is going to give a transforming rebuke. And he goes after this thing that's arising inside of them. Their lack of belief. Their lack of faith. And ask him a series of questions. And arrives at the conclusion. Don't you understand? Don't you know who it is that's sitting with you? This is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe, God Almighty. He's not held back by bread. What in the world are you worried about? And yet, how many times do we as Christians do the same thing? We get caught in a situation, be it a flood, coronavirus, employment, children, relationship, health, whatever, and we're asking the questions, Lord, what are you going to do? And I can't help but wonder if Jesus isn't sitting there looking at us saying, guys, don't you remember who you're talking to? Don't you know who this is? Jesus is the guy who is risen from the dead. Nothing can stop him. He's the absolute, almighty, all-powerful God. Do you know who it is that's with you? Evidently, they miss it. So often we do too, and they cast blame and they criticize one another. And Jesus says, beware of this leaven. Beware of this, because it it will pervade. Now let me show you two different kinds of bread. You already saw this bread right here. This is what we probably would consider as normal bread. Bread that's had yeast in it and caused it to rise. But the Bible often uses this analogy of something called um, leaven or yeast to unleavened bread. And the reason for that is that in the feast of the Passover, when the Israelites are getting ready to exit Egypt, God tells them, hey, 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 you're not going to have time for the bread to rise. You need to get out of Dodge fast. Make this unleavened bread. Get all the yeast out of your house. And then from then on, you're going to celebrate the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and remember what the Lord did when he delivered you from Egypt. And so at times of special celebration or religious worship or other purification festivals, all the yeast is removed from the house and they consume 
unleavened bread. Now, these tortillas would be a little bit like that. They're bread that has not flour, that has not uh, had yeast put in it, so it didn't rise. And so what the idea is, is that sin is like yeast. And any time it gets into something, even if it's a tiny microbial amount, it permeates the whole thing all throughout and causes an effect. And so Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, basically, guys, I know what's going on inside your heart. Yeah, this is what's coming out of your mouths. You're going at each other. But really what it shows us is something else. It shows us an issue that is deep within, that you have not believed in Jesus, that you have not trusted in him, that you're more worried about whose turn it was and who brought what than following your Savior. And perhaps, I don't know, it's possible along the way the sons of thunder didn't agree with some of the other guys and there's bitterness that's built in or whatever else. I don't know. But clearly, there is some infestation of sin that has sunk in. And so Jesus says, hey, watch out for that. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, the Pharisees and Herod are very different. And understand what we're talking about here. I think it's important to point out that Pharisees were legalistic. They obeyed the law. They were righteous from outward purification standards. So Jesus warns the disciples about legalism or pride or things that you think you're all about. And he also goes after Herod, who was a pagan ruler, who was extremely licentious and did whatever he wanted. Actually, there's five Herods, but this is probably the one we're talking about who killed John the Baptist. So these Herodians, these people basically were party animals that wanted to serve the Roman government and move up in power and position. So he says, hey, look, don't be legalistically righteous. Don't be pagan licentious. But understand that holiness comes from believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the only transformative power that can actually work to make a real change in you. Watch out for the sin of thinking differently or believing in anything else. Instead, disciples, what you need to do is see Jesus for who he actually is. Not just a guy who can do tricks, not just a rabbi or a teacher, but you need to see him as the only begotten son of the living God to whom you will give an account and must repent. So today, for us, I want us to do the same thing. I want us to say, hey, do we really see Jesus? I mean, the Pharisees saw him physically. The disciples saw him physically, but they still didn't really see him for who he was. And we read all about him and we think we know him, but let me ask us the question, do we really see Jesus for who he is? Now, in this passage in particular, there's so many things we could say about Jesus. But in this passage in particular, what I think is being emphasized is, number one, his power to do whatever needs to be done. And number two, his perfection 
to do it. His power and his perfection. In other words, Jesus can do anything. But Jesus will only do what is best. And that's so important for us to realize. So important because we go to Jesus and we ask for a miracle because we think, here's this guy with power, I want to see it. But then he doesn't do it. What of that? Jesus only does what is best. Did you notice that in this passage, Jesus didn't multiply the loaves? He didn't give them a miraculous catch of fish? And he didn't turn any water to wine. He let them go to bed hungry. I think he wanted the lesson to sink in a little bit. Guys, it's not about bread. It's about Jesus. He is the bread of life and the only thing that will ever satisfy you. So as long as you're fighting after other things, as long as your heart is set on other stuff, as long as you've focused on external, you will never deal with the internal. Instead, you need to look directly at Jesus and submit to and follow him. He is the perfect one. He is the powerful one. And in a very simple way, I think I would say it like this. If you want to remember it, last week was if when the who's in the house, how's don't matter. This week, I would say it like this. Mr. Can do, will do. Mr. Can do, will do. If you get nothing out of the sermon, get this. Mr. Can do, will do. What does that mean? Mr. Can do is Jesus and he is all powerful. He can do anything. So if there's something that comes into your life and you're getting stirred, you're getting worked up over it, just like I do, you need to ask yourself the question, okay, is Jesus more powerful than that? Is Jesus bigger than that? Can Jesus deal with that? What was I thinking before I thought of him? Was I thinking this was too much for me? Was I thinking that this is going to end it all and ruin everything? Or was I thinking that no matter what it is, Jesus is bigger? Number one, his power, Mr. Can-Do. Number two, his perfection, Mr. Can-Do, will do. He will do. He will do what is best. He will do what is best. And we got to end that sentence that way because so many people want to just say, Mr. Can-Do, will do. Okay, I got a problem. Mr. Can-Do, come alongside, do. But no, no, no. It's not Mr. Can-Do, will do whatever we want him to do. It's Mr. Can do, will do what is best. In this passage, he didn't multiply the bread. In the previous passage, he did. But in this passage, he chose not to, I think, because he wants his disciples to understand the lesson. He sends them to bed hungry because he wants them to know when they fight with each other, they're in trouble. They're going after the wrong things and they need to not worry about that stuff but trust in him, the bread of life, to provide everything which is no big deal for him. So Mr. Can-Do, Will-Do, when a problem comes into our life, we say, yes, we've got Jesus. He can, he can, he can. Will he? I don't know. But I know this. He will do what is best. He will do what is best. And so when we approach him in prayer, we do it just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. This is the perfect prayer. Besides, obviously, the Lord's prayer, which is really not his prayer. It's his model prayer. 
his prayers in John 17. But the Lord's prayer for us is a great prayer. This is a great prayer too. Daniel chapter 3. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to King Nebuchadnezzar, they said to him, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He can. He can. Mr. Can do. That furnace is nothing for him. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you that we will never serve your gods or worship the golden statue that you have set up. He can do. But he will do what is best. Even if he doesn't. And this is the way we have to approach God in prayer. To say, Lord God, I know you can. I know you can. I'm sorry for my worry. I'm sorry for my angst. I'm sorry for my frustration. I'm sorry for my complaints. I'm sorry for the times that I allowed that root of bitterness to build and dwell in me over something that happened that I didn't like. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Lord. I want to stop. I believe you're bigger than that problem. I believe you're bigger. Will you take care of it? But even if you don't, I will trust you to do what's best. Mr. Can-do will do. Mr. Can-do will do. Pharisees, this is Mr. Can-do. You've got to admit, he's the powerful one. Disciples, he's Mr. Can-do. He can He's a powerful one. And Christian, Mr. Can do, will do what is best. What is best in your life? I don't know. God only knows. And that's why you got to go to him and ask him, Lord Jesus, you are powerful over this. You can do this. I am so sorry my fear or lack of faith and my failure to see you. Help me to see you and not others. Help me to see you and not problems. Help me to see you and not my lack. Oh no, I forgot the bread. Help me to see you. It's Mr. Can do. And I pray God that you will do. In me, in our church, in our body, in our community, in Corona, in the flood, in recovery, in crisis, in our families, in our health, in everything. Lord God, you can. And we trust you, Lord, to do what is best. That's what it means to see Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for this time we can spend in your word. Opportunity to be with you and be blessed by you. Lord, we pray as we go into the next aspect of worship, Lord, the bread that you've given us to remember your body. That we will again be humbled by your power and your perfection and all that you gave for us. 
We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.